I imagine that when you get into a car with Tom Zollner and head for the open road, he will know exactly where he's going. He will work with his car's idiosyncratic sputters and mind the places along the highways and byways and lead you to stories about people and places you'd never otherwise experience. This is exactly what we experience in reading Tom Zollner's latest book, The National Road, Dispatches from a Changing America. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. Buckle up. When you read Tom Zollner's essays, you'll feel like you're on the road or wish you were. The hidden secret histories of people and places here will reveal a complicated landscape divided by politics and faith, shaped by racial, social, and economic disparity. One nation, sometimes divisible, sometimes beautiful, always mysterious. I talked to Tom Zollner about his book, The National Road. The book is called The National Road Dispatches from a Changing America. So as I read the book, I kept thinking about the things that were changing. It's a key piece of this book for me. Um, and we see change described and depicted in all kinds of ways. Um, as you've included this as the subtitle of the book, something that basically describes for readers what they're about to walk into and this is a huge question, right, with a huge answer. But can you talk about this idea of change, maybe even generally as um, as part of your motivation for pulling these essays together for this collection? Sure. Broadly speaking, there's two forces for enormous change uh, that are slow moving but inexorable. Um, the first is the Internet. Um, it's, it's really hard to overstate the um, sociological impact um, this uh, amorphous uh, reality in our lives has had um, in terms of destroying once um, solid industries. Uh, the one that hits me the hardest is, of course, the newspaper business, which has been absolutely decimated by um, online uh, news reporting and the, you know, consequent um, degenerization of um, certain information sources. Um, the second force is uh, income inequality which is actually related to the internet in this way that um, those people who work in certain industries such as financial services, such as uh, information, um, such as data, such as e-commerce, you know, they become liberated from geography. They can live anywhere. They do business in the cloud, so to speak. Whereas those who work in other industries such as manufacturing, um, retail, uh, mining, um, healthcare, geography remains an anchor. So broadly speaking, the book as a whole is about geography, uh, about American geography and the ways that it is uh, both broadened but also frightfully limited by uh, the forces of inequality and the internet. Well, some of your topics in this collection move to rather esoteric places. I mean, even though they're not totally obscure subjects, they're a little bit off the beaten path for some of us who do not have the experience of traveling that you do. And so you really open up all of these vistas for us. And even though they're obscure to us, you do such a good job of contextualizing them and helping us understand the, the background and... But I just had to wonder, Tom, how did you choose these subjects? I mean, I never considered really uh, Joseph Smith, for example. So I was wondering, how do you 
how do you find these sort of pet projects? And and it feels like you've just immersed yourself in these places and these people that you write about. Well, first of all, thank you for that uh, that uh, that nice compliment. And uh, I also uh, agree with you about the esoterica uh, that's in this book. It, it does nerd out um, a certain amount. And you mentioned Joseph Smith, the the the, the founding prophet of um, the uh, the Mormon Church. Uh, I'm not uh, a Mormon. I'm not uh, a Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is the formal name. But nevertheless, there's something about uh, that faith which has baptized the American continent in a kind of sacredness, according to their theology. And I, I find that just uh, marvelous, marvelously fascinating. And, and the, the essay to which you refer involves uh, petty trespassing uh, <laughs> that, that I did, you know, not deliberately, but just sort of I would get to these places after nightfall, these historic sites that are important to the Mormon church. And, you know, the gates were closed, the visitor center was closed, but I still wanted to see it. <laughs> so I would just go over the fence. And, you know, something about those experiences, which, you know, we're, we're not precisely supernatural, but still it gets to the question of the worship urge that I, I thought was important. And so you, you, your question um, that was, you know, how, how did these, how did I choose these topics? These topics sort of chose me. And I, I realized, uh, you know, maybe a couple of years into this, that they all were connected with the thread of geography. Well, you described this really interesting supernatural thing that occurred when you were out there uh, that night. You heard the sounds of like some kind of angelic choir. What happened out there? I mean, it really just goes to show every single time that, as we say in nonfiction, you can't make this stuff up. When you put yourself out there in the world, things happen. Um, and you recorded those things and, and it makes such a great story. Thank you. Uh, yeah, to the, the incident to which you're referring, um, happened in the Vermont woods, you know, on a snowy night. Um, uh, this was when I was in graduate school and I had gone to a party where there's, there were some law students and, you know, there was some beer drinking going on. And so, um, not excessively, not, you know, that would have prevented mm -hmm. me from driving home. And on the way home, I saw a, a highway sign that said birthplace of Joseph Smith, two miles with an arrow pointing up the hill. And I thought, you know what, I'm going. <laughs> so <laughs> I went up there and parked my truck, uh, as I said, outside the gates, realizing, oh, they're closed. Of course they're closed. It's like, you know, almost midnight, you know, on a snowy night. There's no way they're going to be open. But you know what, I really want to go in there. <laughs> so I went over the fence. And as you said, yeah, there was this angelic singing coming from the dark woods, which um, that's uh, rather unusual. And, you know, it caused uh, maybe two minutes of thinking, what, what have I walked into or what, what's happening? And before I realized, you know, they had left the Christmas Carol tape on all night long. And so, you know, they're, they're playing Hark the Herald Angels sing to nobody in the middle of the woods at this historic site. And, you know, it, it created a a moment of, um, you know, kind of being freaked out. Well, you mentioned that you are not of this faith, but I, I, when I read the essay, I came away with this feeling, this is part of the American landscape that you're introducing us to. And then I, I was looking at Joseph Smith and thinking about how you offer him up as a, a person to be admired, even. What, what is it that you, that you admire about him? Well, uh, first of all, he was a, an enormously gifted storyteller. And uh, the Book of Mormon is really hard to read. 
it's it's turgid, you know, um, but it contains uh, the seeds of a marvelous spiritual imagination. And so uh, I agree with you that um, the, the the sort of title of the essay, which is Mormon Historic Sites at Night, might be off-putting, you know, mm -hmm. that, that uh, we're just not going to want to read about something that's, you know, of a different faith, or if, if we don't have any faith, that we don't want to read about it at all. But you know, I'm I'm a believer in uh, religious literacy. That you know, just being a part of a good citizen is sort of having a basic kind of knowledge about what uh, different faiths happen to believe in. You know, sort of a non-judgmental approach to their theology. That we should all have kind of a, a, a knowledge of the basic tenets of Islam, of Buddhism, of Hinduism, and you know, Mormonism certainly fits into that um, schema particularly when it comes to the United States, which is the, the, the cradle of the religion. Well, it, the, the payoff was great. I mean, it, it was a, a great essay, and I learned so much. And, and of course, the story, your own storytelling uh, sort of merged with uh, what we learned about Joseph Smith uh, was, was just wonderful. Um, we learn a little bit more about you in the essay Drive. You do something I think a lot of us wouldn't. Uh, wouldn't do in 2021, frankly, and maybe some of us couldn't do it, but you used to sleep in your car a lot. So when you mentioned the parking lot um, at this place where you heard the choir, I thought uh, of many parking lots <laughs> where, you've, where you've had to uh, sleep. Um, so I'm, I'm just wondering, like, when was the last time you did that? That could not have been too, too recent um, that you would sleep in your car. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I haven't uh, gone anywhere since the, the, the pandemic sure. to send it. But uh, yeah, that's still um, sort of a habit. And uh, you, you're right that uh, perhaps I do enjoy a certain you know, privilege in doing it. But, you know, tonight, even in the midst of the pandemic, there's going to be tens of thousands of people sleeping in their cars. You know, this is this sure. is a, a, a feature of. Uh, economic inequality. It's 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 not pleasant, but it, it, it's real. There's a nomadic um, culture out there. I, I might even draw a comparison to uh, hobo culture of the Depression era, where people would jump on board freight trains to go to the next, you know, agricultural job. Mm -hmm. We've got that today. Um, it's more vehicle based, but you can find encampments of um, homeless people sleeping in. Um, you know, uh, certainly not very affluent looking RVs, you mm -hmm. know, and, and in their cars. And, you know, I did it when I was a little more poor, you know, just to save mm -hmm. 50 bucks on a motel. Um, and those of those listeners who have done it, you know, know that yeah, it can be uncomfortable, but, <laughs> you know, you find ways to sort of make it comfortable. Yes, and I like all of the suggestions and the, the good advice just in case about uh, in between the lights or... Um, not in too, too um, uh, dark or distant a, a spot within the lot. So that would, that's, uh, <laughs> I, thought, I thought about that. Well, you never know. It'd make them up. You just never know. Yeah, yeah, like... yeah, yeah. If I could pass on uh, <laughs> church parking lots on yeah. any, any night but a Saturday night because you're going to get Sunday morning parishioners maybe, <laughs> you know, calling the cops on you. But, you know, they, they typically make uh, very good places to sleep. The other thing we learned about you is that you love to drive and while you live out this idea about, you know, Americans' love affair with the automobile, the whole thing is really less about the car for you than just the idea of moving and, and certainly of driving, but not the car. I know a lot of people who treat their cars like, I don't know, like extensions of themselves, like 
the, the wash and the wax and the detailing as just as a matter of routine in their lives. But your point is really different. A car is merely utilitarian. You don't even know have, have to know too much about, um, you know, what's under the hood. It's You make a car work for you and you make these uh, excursions. I just really appreciated that because I think I feel like people um, – I don't know, like this, this, uh, treating the car like, uh, something to polish up and show off. I've just never, uh, been into that. So it was just something about this utilitarian purpose for the, for the automobile. And that was it, uh, that I really appreciated. Yeah. Well, I agree with you about it. I don't see cars as uh, fetish objects. You know, that's not to disrespect those who, who do, you know, um, I just don't share that interest it's the mm. same way that, what I would like from a computer is to be able to turn it on and, you know, save a Microsoft Word document or send an email. And really, that's about it. You know, mm -hmm. it's it's sort of a, a means to a to an end, you know, not a, a thing to be sort of uh, worshipped on its own. You mentioned earlier this idea of the Internet and how that's one of the, these big features of change. Um, and it, it made me think about the attention that you the same attention you don't pay to the exterior of a car, you do not pay uh, to um, GPS. <laughs> and you have like this thing for the, the Rand McNally Road Atlas. And there's like a level of disdain that you harbor for people <laughs> that uh, rely on the GPS. Haven't you ever been in a situation where the, the GPS kind of saved your trip for you? Absolutely. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I'm not a purist. I, I will just along with the best of them, you know, look at my phone while driving, which is not a great idea, but I still do it. Um, yeah, that's to say that I have a nostalgia for the, uh, the paper map, um, which I, I think gives you a, a kind of a panorama on the, the landscape that taps something kind of kind of ancient, you know, uh, or at least since uh, cartography became a democratized thing maybe around the time of the printing press but oh. there's, there's something about holding it in your hands the tactile quality of it yeah i, I reading that part um yeah the, i i felt it, almost a sense of longing for just a regular old map um and and, and just the way that you describe that you have to be driving when you're looking at it. <laughs> um so all of that was yeah i i think i did look at that with a certain amount of nostalgia yeah, I mean, with a map, you have to maintain a certain presence of mind. Mm -hmm. You have to orient yourself in terms of the cardinal directions. You have to sort of pay attention to the streets you're passing. Whereas we all know with a phone, you can just almost put yourself on autopilot and just be guided there almost like a railroad track. And that's uh, it's no fun. And I think people forget it wasn't that long ago. That's all we had. That's all. That's all we really had. So... Uh, yeah, it, was nice it to read required about a conversance with the the, the landscape. Yeah. Uh, where I where I live in Los Angeles, there used to be this encyclopedia-sized publication called the Thomas Guide, which would tell you, which was you know a, a map of every paved street in you know Los Angeles and Orange Counties. Which, wow. you know, I, I have one of the very last ones to be printed in 2011. It's a massive thing that I, you know, everyone used to have to kind of put on their laps and sort of understand where they were. And I think people understood Los Angeles a lot better with having to mm -hmm. go through that rather than just sort of being, you know, told where to go on their phones. Oh, I can imagine that. I was reading the story yesterday about Robert Louis Stevenson. 
he traveled quite a lot in the years before his death, his very untimely death. He, he was very young. He died at the age of 44. But he'd settled in Samoa, and he died there uh, five years before the land was partitioned between Germany and the United States. Um, but he traveled a lot and, and then settled there. And I couldn't help but think about, while I was reading about him, your story about Spillville, although no one has died there, but this Czech composer, is it Dvorak? Dvorak. Found a very hospitable place there for himself. Can you talk about that great story? Sure. Um, as you've said, in the summer of uh, 1893, the Czech composer Antonin Dvorak, who was living in New York City at the time, um, was looking for a place to recharge his batteries. And, you know, uh, his secretary suggested, uh, why don't you go out to this frontier town in Iowa where a bunch of Czech immigrants have settled from Bohemia? And he said, you know what, that's a great idea. So he took the train out um, in 1893 to, you know, what was then sort of the uh, um, very undeveloped uh, northeastern corner of Iowa. And he had a wonderful summer um, composing something called the American Quartet. And so uh, 125 years after that summer, I went to Spillville um, to get a sense of what northeastern Iowa was thinking about immigrants, such as um, the, the, the Czech settlers of Spillville had been, you know, newcomers to America who didn't speak the language, who, you know, were in, in, in here for the economic opportunity and to raise their families and so forth. And, you know, uh, northeastern Iowa, uh, although far from our southern border, still has you know, a number of uh, Spanish-speaking immigrants. And it's it's tied to the, the, the pork business as well as uh, packing houses. And um, I found a, a complicated story. There was certainly Trumpist nativism going on. Hmm. It's not hard to find. But, you know, there was also a sense of uh, our economy is going to freeze up if we don't have people to come here and do the work. Um, a lot of this work that Americans just don't want to do. You know, minding hogs and uh, slaughtering animals in a packing house, which is tremendously hard labor. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's there's uh, an American schizophrenia about immigration that lives on in uh, this town that Dvorak uh, had uh, spent his time in. Hmm. It's a it's a wonderful essay. I hope everybody gets a chance to read it. I just learned so much about um, Dvorak. You know, I. I've heard the, the music before, I've heard the name before, and I just didn't know the story. It's a gem. It's a gem in the book. I want to ask you about the final essay in the book. I found it so profound and poignant. The title is, At the End There Will Be Strangers. And while all along we've been traversing all these spaces and places in this book, now we come to a place that we can only truly understand, not through going there or researching, but through your own connection to it. And yet, the themes of the piece are just as universal as they can be. I was thinking about my own grandmother, for instance. Your grandmother's experiences, I mean, they are like those of uh, many of our grandmothers and mothers who experienced a loss in a certain era for, for their generation, and then were driven to a particular kind of self-reliance. 
So I really a- admired learning about your grandmother. But then it, it's really about the space, again, the geography. At a very particular time now, um, that's more recent, and that house, the house. Can you talk about that essay a little bit? Sure. Uh, back to geography. I mean, um, the, we have, uh, I think most families in the United States have a, a, a little postage stamp of ancestral geography, a place where um, their, their, their parents, their grandparents, or perhaps even many generations back um, had a house and, 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 and land if they were involved in farming. And, you know, those of us um, in, in, in the later generations, you know, may or may not have a relationship with that piece of land. I, I happened to, um, you know, have obviously visited my grandma many times. And this piece of, you know, what was then considered when they built the house worthless dirt in uh, a Phoenix suburb had since sort of become the very snooty, high income, um, you know, suburb with golf courses and McMansions and our, you know, working class family didn't get to participate in that at all. You know, we are, the house was very modest. My grandma was a lifelong civil servant of the state of Arizona. And so it comes the time when um, grandma passes on and, you know, we sell the house, sell the land and um, down comes the house. Um, It was in real estate parlance, a teardown. And so, you know, so, some listeners may have had this sort of experience or even choice. If you know when the house is going to be torn down, do you go watch it? Um, and I was really, really torn. Um, I this It was going to be painful. Who wants to see that? You know, this is a house that I had had, you know, memories of since I was a toddler. Do I really want to see it destroyed in the name of some rich person's McMansion? Um, I, I finally decided that I should go. Um, to be almost a representative of the family there at the very end. And uh, it was a a miserable experience. Um, Just so sad. And a a reminder of mortality, uh, a reminder of how we don't own anything on this earth. We're renters. We have such a short lifespan. You know, we're in between two yawning unknowns, the time before we were born and the time after we die. What happens, you know? Um, and, and we're left sometimes with contemplating the shells of you know what stands and what has remained of those people that we loved. And so, as I say, it was horrible. I, I wouldn't ever want to do it again, but I'm glad I did it, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. I feel like the experience was made slightly worse by the person who purchased the property. You're right. Uh, he was callous totally indifferent, said several things that were um, so um, tone deaf. Uh, he, he said, yeah, we, we're, we really want to experience all the amenities that you guys have enjoyed here. And I thought, you know what? Amenities is like a stupid real estate word, first of all. Mm-hmm. You know, it's meant for brochures. And also, this was my family's house. And we were poor. And we didn't have any quote unquote amenities, you know. What are you talking about? You know, and a couple other, you know, extremely stupid things that he said that made me just want to stay away from him and not ever say another word. Oh, he sounded just terrible. And I found, maybe it's not ironic, but I just, the the detail about the fact that he's involved with 
with these memory care centers that people people who need compassion rely on. It yeah, was just a that's, very... that, that, was, that was an irony. You can't oh, make this stuff up. The, the, the family made their money in uh, facilities which are dedicated to caring for uh, people with dementia and Alzheimer's and you yeah. know preserving what's left of that memory. And here, here this guy is knocking down my memories. You know? uh, uh, not that, you know, look, he, he bought the land fair and square. There was nothing like illegal about it. But mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, it was done so callously. Well, but, you know, reading that story, um, all of the the people in your family just came alive. Your uncle, your Aunt Diane, your grandmother. I mean, it was just, it is just such a gorgeous essay um just unforgettable just an unforgettable essay thank you thank you that, that gratifies me to hear that well tom you were a reporter for many years and you're an academic teaching at chapman university mm -hmm. but you're also the politics editor for the los angeles review of books so in your tenure in this role as politics editor what have you found to be instructive in terms of books or your own research for us now in 2021 to know as a nation? Not looking back at the last four years, but looking forward. What's been in instructive for you? And I don't mean like the title of a book or an author's name, but just in all of that work that you do um, in this particular context, what's something that we need to know moving forward, do you think? That's a great question. And uh, I'll say that uh, I am an optimist. I think the, the, the book under discussion here um, is an optimistic work, um, not only a celebration of the American land, but also of uh, American perseverance in the face of huge challenges. Um, I think that uh, political liberals such as myself need to re-embrace patriotism as a virtue and stop being embarrassed about uh, love for the country. Um, uh, January 6th was a huge, I think, shock to the conscience of all of us who assumed that the Constitution was this transcendent document that would always stand. It's more, far more vulnerable than that, and it does require uh, the vigilance of patriots, which is another word that's been completely hijacked and twisted. Um, for us to, you know, do our duty as, as, as citizens. Um, there is uh, an authoritarian threat. Uh, there is a threat from the pulling apart of the United States, such as uh, George Packer wrote in his great book, The Unwinding, the way that um, the rich and privileged uh, have become more and more separate mm -hmm. um, from the working poor, from the middle class, and that there is uh, a disintegration of shared mission. And, you know, in, in some ways, an artificial conflict that's been ginned up by um, uh, partisan media and the, you know, destruction of uh, newspapers, as we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. you know, but uh, also there, there is a very real sense of a, uh, an economy that's leaving people behind. And, you know, leaving them to reach for extreme solutions, which uh, is a horrible idea. Well, it's an unfair question, I think, to ask you um, 
can America ever really recover from what divides it? I mean, these disparities that you that you talk about, these fractured systems, there's such a brokenness that's so palpable. I don't know, maybe now more than ever, or maybe everything is relative, but it feels pretty bad right now. But there's some, there is something about that optimism that I really see in this book. And, and I really saw it, I grabbed onto that idea with the very first essay. Uh, and and I sort of walk with this idea as I read the rest of the book. Uh, so the essay, Your Land, there's something about, you know, there's these words from the Woody Guthrie song, this idea of the, the landscape being democratized for us. I mean, it can that can be a problematic thing to think about. Um, but if you look at it from another standpoint, yes, we have this painful history our nation forged on slavery, for instance. But this first essay seems to walk us all in at least to the possibility and potential of the spaces in this country that we can discover simply because we are free to travel. I mean, not not during the pandemic time, of course, but we are free to go to Spillville. We are free to go to these places. Um, and some of these places have painful, painful histories that are palpable even still today. But there's this idea, this this historian's chestnut that you mentioned, that geography is destiny. I just found something so hopeful in that first essay that, you know, even some of the things that I encountered later on in some of the subsequent essays, I just I carried this idea with me. So I'm I'm very happy to hear what you're saying about, you know, looking into the future and sort of we've identified so many issues as a nation where I think we're we're coming clean on some of them if we can um, and you know some of these other things are sort of unnoticed now I don't know I, I like this idea that you mentioned about not to be embarrassed about being patriotic and loving your country there's a lot to love and there's something about your book that reminds us of that I mean there's a hearkening back here to simpler times and some of these storefronts and some of these places that you visited that maybe might not be there anymore for us. But but there's still there's still other things, right? I just feel like it's a changing America, but it but it's still very much America. I mean, I don't want to sound so corny about it, but I just feel like there's still something very hopeful about where this book takes us. Thank you. And you're, you're absolutely right that we have many shameful elements of our uh, history. And the Constitution was a document that uh, had carried the assumption of slavery, the infamous three-fifths compromise being a, uh, a notorious example, mm -hmm. and a Constitution that required many amendments and a civil war to correct some of its flaws. And you know, constitutional correction still goes on. But we should never lose sight of the fact that, particularly in its historical context, it was a magical, sacred document with a brilliant idea at its core. And, you know, um, I am fully in agreement with those who, who see um, the brutalities, the, you know, uh, really disgusting inequalities uh, in our past. But I want us to redeem um, that part of it 
um, which uh, is, you know, uh, sorry to repurpose a Reaganite phrase, but a city on, on a hill, you know, um, not to get too deep into the last four years, but, you know, that was, I, I think, a really incalculable blow that this country took that our moral authority uh, was kind of squandered in terms of our ability to uh, be an example for other nations about peaceful transfers of power, about um, guardrails against autocracy, mm-hmm. you know, uh, about a, a certain uh, morality in our dealings with um, not only ourselves, but with other nations. Uh, America's been terribly imperfect, but it still had a kind of a North Star to remind us of these things. It still does, you know, although under challenge. That same essay mentions the COVID-19 pandemic and this idea that travel for Americans will be further curbed. Americans like to think that, as you say in the essay, we, we have always been about motion and movement, climbing and ascending, exploring and discovering. But you offer the statistic that one of every five Americans changed their address in 1950, and today the figure's more like one in nine. I was surprised mm-hmm. at that. Um, and I'm thinking... The slowdown was happening pre-pandemic, but yes, the pandemic's not helping that uh, that matter. How do you think the pandemic will affect your own wanderlust and your other research pursuits? Because it's, from reading the book, it seems to me like you're not a guy who's, who's on the phone all the time and Googling stuff. You travel to places, you shake people's hands, and you talk to them in person and you go into their houses and sit at their tables. What are the, the paradigm shifts in your research about now? Do you think? That's a great question. Um, I don't leave the house, you know, um, I take COVID seriously. Um, you know, not just for my own family's safety, but I, you know, would dread the thought that I'm getting someone else sick. So, you know, um, this is, uh, uh, necessary precautions. I think of, uh, during World War II, the citizen sacrifices that uh, our uh, grandparents, great-grandparents made, you know, joining the Civil Air Patrol, doing without uh, certain kinds of foods, not getting their tires changed, mm. you know, um, uh, a, a sense of uh, motivation to, to, to get through it, uh, not keeping their lights on at night if they lived on the coast. You know, these things were social expectations. And now we have these, these ridiculous, you know, arguments about freedom, about the, the, this extremely easy, basic thing to do is just wear a mask. You know, that creates such a sense of, you know, what's the word? Disappointment, you yeah. know, and, and, and your neighbors. Like, you know, do you, do you care so little about people that, you know, your freedom to go around breathing during a pandemic is somehow like more important than the life of your 80 year old neighbor, all that. But the question you asked about is about travel. Yes, I can't wait to (laughs) get back on the road. (laughs) Tom Zollner, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. Tom Zollner is the author of The National Road, Dispatches from a Changing America. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Bree Kirkham is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. 